Father, we thank you that your name is powerful. It is powerful to heal. Your name is powerful to set free. Your name is powerful to redeem. Your, pow- your name is powerful to change situations in our life. And Father, as we gather to worship your name, to lift your name high, Father, we pray that as we have already experienced and we will continue to, to experience the power of your kingdom, of the resurrection in our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. Take a seat. There's a bit of a ring in that microphone, Jeff. It's going to annoy me. If you've got any um, special tricks up there, that'd be uh, wonderful. Otherwise, we can uh, push on through. Or a different microphone. Can I try that one, Chrissy? Maybe we'll... How's that? That's, that's a little bit... Tr- we'll be right. Hey, uh... Oh, wonderful. No better? We need a bit of bass. I don't know. Anyway, you'll work it out as we go. Just, we'll be right. Um, What I loved um, the most um, this morning, um, it's probably the least perhaps spiritual thing that we might recognise, is that, Ruby, I love that you shared your story in Ugg boots this morning. Um, I love that you felt comfortable to wear your Ugg boots Um, in church and as you shared on the platform and it spoke to me about home um, that Ugg boots speak nothing of but being at home and as you shared your story I feel like uh, the way that you articulated what God has done in your life is you being at home and I think that God has got heaps more for you in that in your life that it will continue to feel like home as you share what he's doing in your life. And so keep wearing the Ugg boots, my friend. Keep wearing the Ugg boots. <clears throat> Maybe I need to preach in Ugg boots. Is that, a, is that fair permission? Uh, very good. In the last two weeks, I've been to Canberra three times, uh, which having not been there since I was in primary school is quite a lot of times to be in Canberra. I've decided that I like Canberra. I like its spaciousness. I like Canberra's wide roads. I like its lake. I like its food. I even like its coffee. And I like how important Canberra feels with Parliament and the High Courts and all of the national things, the the national archives and the sound and music archives and I like that it feels important because our money is made there at the Mint. I found, well, I didn't find this out. I knew this about my dad, but only since we were there, I texted him and said, Dad, where did you live in Canberra? And Dad sent us his address, number 41 Limestone Avenue, just up from Campbell High School, where he was ducks of year 12. I love that I've got family history in Canberra. Most of all, though, I love the buildings and the architecture in Canberra. I love how organised and thoughtful and well-planned Canberra is. It seems like in Canberra, everything has its place. This one particular photo, just the first photo there, Mia, um, this is taken from uh, the, the little veranda there at Parliament House, and as you look out through that little square, you look straight up Commonwealth Avenue, past the old Parliament House, up the road to the War Memorial and the perfect symmetry of Canberra 
um, incredibly well thought out, organized, and everything has its place. In fact, I feel like the person who designed Canberra um, would have had the most impressive pantry ever. They would be the one with the Tupperware that is neatly all put in place, all labelled with the Dymo machine in alphabetical order. Elise Standen. <laughs> I thought did cross my mind that potentially it was a woman who designed Canberra. To which you might say, oh Dave, don't be so presumptuous or gender stereotypical. However, history records that in April 1911, the Australian Commonwealth Government held an international competition to produce a design for its new, as yet unnamed, federal capital city. Sir Walter Burley Griffin, who we assume to be the one who designed Canberra, produced a design with impressive renderings of the plan by his new wife. It was indeed a very well-organised, articulate woman who designed Canberra. They did it on their honeymoon. They won the competition over 137 entries and they were the winning people. And he said this, I'd planned a city that is not like any other in the world. I have planned it not in a way that I expected any government authorities in the world would accept. I have planned an ideal city, a city that meets my ideal of the city of the future. My only beef is there's no beach, not one with waves anyway. See, whether it's my shed, which is a piece of architectural genius in my backyard, or a multi-storey residential complex where you drive past somewhere that is you know, like the likes of South Village and you see that in construction, um, or, or whether it is any uh, building of parliament or anything of enormity, something that at one point didn't exist and now it does. You know, in between those two realities is where I am most impressed. As I consider the collaborative, coordinated and passionate effort of countless people working together to see a plan, a vision, an idea realised. A concerted effort of people who had particular skills, unique talents, certain training, the financial capital to invest in the process of building something of both incredible function but also incredible beauty. As we're in Canberra, I think about the War Memorial, and we put a photo up of the next one here at the War Memorial, and this is during the um, afternoon uh, remembrance service that they have, and they tell a story of um, a soldier from the days of war, and uh, they play the last post. It's just a beautiful and captivating moment. But as the sun was setting, and to see these arches, and to see the lines, and to see how the light was interacting with the memorial, I consider the creative genius of the people who saw this design in their mind's eye. The people who put pen to paper to scratch out its plan, the stone workers who mined and sourced and cut every piece of stonework and placed it in their place. The landscapers, the artists, 
the sound and lighting and audio engineers that go into every exhibition being an immersive and captivating experience, the curators who source all of the artworks and all of the things that grab our imagination, and no less the men and women who gave their lives in theatres of war for our land and our freedom. The coordinated efforts of a team of people building something incredible together is captivating. And I think that's why I love God's church so much. That God is a God who builds. And he doesn't build alone. He is a creative genius. He is a distinguished architect. God is a master builder. He took the formless chaos of darkness at the beginning of time. And he crafted it with light and with words and gave life to everything upon our earth. Isaiah 40, 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and who has marked out the heavens with its span? Such is the creative genius of our God. In his wisdom, he takes men and women of clay and transforms them into precious stones to be built together into a miraculous structure of treasure for the display of his infinite wisdom and amazing design. It was said of Abraham in Hebrews 11.10 that his faith was a credit to him for many reasons, but one of them being for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God is a wise designer. God is a master craftsman. God is building not the ideal city that Walter Burley Griffin saw in his mind, nor his wife's, but he is building an eternal city. God does not build alone, and he has never chosen to work independently of his people, even when they stuff it up, even when we get the plans and we read them upside down and we put the wrong thing in the wrong place. Such is his incredible grace. And one of the earliest building projects that God set out to build with his people was a tabernacle. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Exodus 35. I'm going to grab a drink while you do so. It's going to be on the screen as well. There's a bunch of slides that will roll on through in a few moments' time. And the backstory to this moment in Exodus 35 is Israel had been uh, delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they were in their journey towards the promised land and God had interacted with them regularly with his people to shape them into the nation that he promised that they would be. And he made a covenant with them in giving them the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And as we know, um, within the first five seconds, they stuffed it up. They went and built themselves a dirty big cow made of gold and they began bowing down and worshipping it, um, to which those tablets were rendered useless and Moses had to go back up the mountain a second time, which we see in Exodus chapter 34. And Moses trudged back up Mount Sinai for the second time 
God wasn't prepared, I believe, for their stuff up to limit his plans, so he renewed his covenant with them again. On coming back down the mountain, and this is where we pick up in Exodus 35, God wanted them to build a place where he could dwell, the tabernacle. I mean, maybe Jesus was a bit sick of climbing mountains, probably as much as Moses was. He wanted a home among his people, a home among the gum trees and the plum trees, with a sheep or two and a kangaroo, maybe even a clothesline out the back. Maybe God wanted a veranda out the front and an old rocking chair. Sorry, I digress. We had a road trip this week, one of them to Canberra on Friday with uh, Greg and Chrissy and Elise and um, Avril. And the game we play is in the car, you just you load up the queue on Spotify with all your songs and they're going through the Spice Girls and all their 80s and 90s and all of that, you know, pop stuff. And there was a couple of good stuff in there, Burnsy's Pearl Jam and all the rest. When it comes to my turn, I know they are all pretty well avid country music haters and so things like John Williamson was getting slipped into that playlist left, right and centre. I even put Casey Chambers in and almost got kicked out of the car. Uh, <coughs> I, I love a bit of country music. Oh dear. Anyway, Moses uh, gathered all of the people and this Exodus 35 moment was the first on-site meeting to get this home for God rolling. And I'm going to read Exodus 35, verse 4 and onwards. Moses said to all of the congregation of the people of Israel, I should introduce the topic, shouldn't I, of what I'm preaching about today. It's about to become clear. But we're doing this series called Milestones, Why We Do What We Do. And today we're speaking about why we give. Why we give. Which probably hasn't been apparent up until this point, talking about buildings and architecture. Bear with me. Moses said to all of the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. The NIV adds in here, from what you have. He goes on, whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, the onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tents and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and its utensils, and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of the incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense. The altar of the burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests." 
Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all of its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were willing of heart, bought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had, spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All of the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spices and the oil for the light and the anointing oil and of the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. In chapter 36, the craftsmen then go on to build a tabernacle, a place of what sounds like would be of incredible beauty, something so well thought out, something so well designed, something so impeccably architecturally designed from the very center of heaven's drawing room. They built a place for God to dwell. All of them, the men and the women, the young and the old, they all came together in a coordinated and collaborative effort, this team of people whose hearts were willing and whose hearts were stirred by God to build something incredible together. It reminds me of the story of Nehemiah, where the whole community of God's people came together to repair the walls of Jerusalem that had been torn down by the enemy. In the story, we hear of families taking responsibility for a section of the wall each, where they would all come out in front of their houses and around the city, and they would all take stones and begin to replace stones, and they would get gates and repair the gates, and they would uh, do everything required to refortify their city. And I love in Nehemiah how it, it says you know, that the, 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 the arc of the narrative continues with these couple of words, and next to him, and next to them, and next to him. And Nehemiah paints this incredible picture of what it looks like for the community of God's people to build shoulder to shoulder, to work side by side, to build what God was doing. They all brought what was in their hand. They all brought their skills. They all brought their time. They all brought their money. They all brought their trade. And they all brought their passion. Some worked while others stood guard. 
and then they swapped. Just another narrative in the midst of Scripture that points out a coordinated and collaborative effort of a team of people who had things in their hand to give, whose hearts were willing, whose spirits were stirred by God to partner with him in what he was doing at the time. So if I'm going to answer the question of why do we give, it must begin with what God is doing. See, we don't give because the preaching monkey dances the way we want him to preach or her to preach. We don't give because the music monkey plays our favourite songs. We don't give because the building we go to or the church that we attend has the best coffee in town. We give because God is active in the world, building an eternal city of light, the new Jerusalem, his church, and he is asking us to partner with him in what he is building. And what I see in scripture is that when God calls for something to be built, he calls his people to give. When God calls for something to be built, he calls his people to give. I think it's more impressive than a calling. It's an invitation. Because God doesn't force this upon his people and we don't see it anywhere in Scripture. There is an invitation into a heart-transforming experience where we receive a stirring of Holy Spirit in our hearts, where we are moved from the depths of our being in response to what God is doing in the moment. He invites us. When God has something to build, when he has an architecturally designed drawing for the redemption of humanity in his mind, he invites you and I in. He shows us a glimpse, never in its totality, unfortunately, because we'd probably run. He shows us something of it and he invites us in. And as God's people, the days of building are not behind us. In Acts 2, Peter stands before the people and he proclaims and he preaches the new covenant. Not a covenant marked by the blood of animals, but a covenant made by the blood of Jesus. Not a covenant of religious duty, but a covenant of grace. Not a covenant of judgment, but a covenant of resurrection and new life. He preached the promise of God's enduring presence. He preached the promise of the power of his spirit. He preached the promise of joy and gladness. And he preached the promise of victory in the resurrection of Christ. And in response to the announcement of this new covenant, and I find it fascinating that the response to the announcement of this new covenant was the same response to the announcement of the first covenant, people gave. Literally the first thing that God invited his people to when he gave the old covenant, not once but twice, in Exodus 24 and 25, then again in Exodus 34 and 35, both times he makes a covenant, the very first thing he says is give. But here we aren't under an old covenant, we are under a new covenant, the days of the Spirit, and the Spirit still says to us this morning, give. We see it evidence in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. At the announcement of the old covenant, God called the people to build a place for him to dwell. Under the new covenant in which we live, he's building a people in which he dwells. God used to dwell in a place, the tabernacle. Now he dwells in a people. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. But he's asking us to join him. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is a very much, we are all in this together picture that Paul paints. That we were all once far off, but we have been brought near. That we were once far from God, but in his great love and mercy has drawn us close. That we were once lonely and we were afflicted, but he has placed us in family. Members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the corner stone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As God's people, the days of building are not behind us. The days are now and they are also ahead. God is continuing to call us to partnership in what he is doing in the world. And that is building a people in which he dwells for his glory and for his mission in the world. So as I ponder what is God doing and what he is calling us to, my curiosity led me to Ecclesiastes, the passage of Scripture that reminds us that there is a time for everything under heaven. There's a time to be born and a, a time to die. There is a time to plant and to harvest and to weep and to laugh. And there is a time to mourn and there is also a time to dance. And in my curiosity, I was asking the Lord, what is this a time for? And there was two that stood out to me almost like they were hit control B to bold these two in this passage of Scripture. It says, There is a time uh, to tear down and a time to build and a time to tear and a time to mend. I believe that this is a time to mend and a time to build. A time to mend and a time to build. I mean, perhaps there has never been a time where the world is so broken. Or maybe that it's just broken in different ways. In ways that are having tragic impacts across the landscape of the human soul. 
from the youngest life to the oldest. You know, the destruction of our environment through to our culture. Our sense of identity all the way through to the way that we work. From the abuse of power to the abuse of substance, from the division created by culture wars to the heinous violence of war and gangland violence. It appears that the fabric of humanity is more than frayed at the edges. It's being torn to shreds by the rush and hurry of human design at the expense of paying attention to God's plans. I am convinced, however, that it is the people of the local church, the chosen dwelling place of God, that by His design and by virtue that the master architect and builder who is present and resides among us is the answer to the pain, the suffering, and the heartache that is tearing our world to pieces. I believe we are called to mend the people around us, to mend the communities we live in, the cities that we call home, and the world beyond us by partnering with God with what He is doing as He builds His church. And when God calls His people to build... He calls his people to give. So why do we give? To partner with God in what he's doing in the world, co-laboring with him as he builds his church to mend and to build. We give to resource our efforts as a church to mend broken lives. We give to resource our efforts as a church to mend broken systems, broken culture, broken and fragmented communities. We give to resource our co-laboring efforts with the Lord to build a unified, multi-generational community, discipled in the way of Jesus for his glory and his mission in the world. And I want to echo Paul's, sorry, Timothy's, the, Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, and this is on the screen as well. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, I see a church that is a coordinated, collaborative in its efforts, team of people, a family building together, side by side, peoples whose hearts are willing and whose hearts have been stirred by the Spirit to partner with Him in mending and in building. And so can I ask you to consider what is in your hand? Can I ask you to acknowledge the good 
that you've got. Can I encourage you to take stock of the totality of God's blessing in your life, your money, your material, your time, and your skill? Can I ask you to cultivate a spirit of generosity and put it into practice? Can I ask you to bring what you have, what is in your hand, to bring what you have settled in your heart with the Lord and find your spot along the others on the wall of mending and repairing and building. To partner with God as he builds his church, the place in which he now dwells and is using to reach the world. Back in the day, even today, people like me are wowed by Canberra. But golly gee, it will pale in comparison to the beauty, the design, the function, the purpose, the landscape, the food, the community, the music, and there'll be heaps of country music in heaven. The art, the oceans, the rivers, and the lakes of our eternal city that we are building for now. The mending that we do now, the healing work we do now, the people care that we do now, the planet care that we do now, the justice in which we work toward now, the preaching of the gospel we do now is all building with God for eternity. And no effort now is wasted in heaven and no gift given is without eternal consequence and rich legacy in God's kingdom. And when that eternal vision is fulfilled, a day I don't know when is coming, I can hear the song. We built this city... We built this city on. Uh, same song, maybe, just a bit different. We built this city on love. We built this city on sacrifice. We built this city on giving generously. We built this city on surrender. We built this city on bringing what we had in our hands and sharing it generously with others. We built this city with the genius architect and the master builder. We built this city with a carpenter from Nazareth who gave his all that we would be his forever. And so there is no greater cause And there is no greater call than to partner with God in what he is doing in the world. And that is why we give. Amen.